All right. Good morning. How you guys doing this morning? It's a little chilly, but we're going to make it through. <laughs> um, if you guys wonder at all why I might be walking a little bit weird this morning, I tried to race the youth yesterday. Uh, it's been a few years since I've been in college and in shape to do that. I didn't stretch ahead of time. And I, I told I said, well, I'm not as good as I once was. I'm good once as I ever was. Well, that's not too much back. It's about as worst once as I ever was. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm struggling a little bit this morning, but we're going to have a good time. Uh, I've been praying for the last several weeks on where God wanted me to go with this message this morning. Um, and where God wanted me to teach, not just um, those that don't come to our church, but also our church family. What did God have for us here? Uh, what is his message for us from the resurrection? And so I really hope you guys will be blessed by the message this morning. Uh, more importantly, by God's words. I wanted to open up with a story that I found that was just really inspiring, that really wraps in the message this morning. And I think you guys will really enjoy this. So I titled the sermon, A Father's Love for You. And this is how the story goes. A young man was getting ready to graduate college. For many months, he had admired a beautiful sports car in a dealer's showroom. And knowing his father could well afford it, he told him when he graduated, that's all he wanted. So as graduation day approached, the young man awaited signs that his father had purchased this exact car. Finally, on the morning of his graduation, his father called him to his private study. His father told him how proud he was to have such a fine son and that he was so proud of his accomplishment of graduating. He told him how much he loved him. So he handed his son a beautifully wrapped box. So this obviously shocked the son, thinking, hmm, maybe there's a car key in here, but a little weird that he gave me a box. So curious, but somewhat disappointed, the young man then opened the box and found a lovely leather-bound Bible. Angrily, he raised his voice at his father and said, with all your money, you give me a Bible? And stormed out of the house, leaving the holy book. Many years passed, and the young man was very successful in business. He had a beautiful home and a wonderful family, but realized his father was very old and thought perhaps he might should go visit him. It had been years since he had seen him since that encounter. He had not seen him since the graduation day, in fact. Before he could make any arrangements, he received a telegram telling him his father had passed away and he willed all his possessions to his son. He needed to come home immediately and take care of things. So when he arrived at his father's house, Sudden sadness and regret filled his heart. He began to search his father's important papers and saw the still new Bible just as he had left it years ago. With tears, he opened the Bible and began to turn the pages. As he read those words, a car key dropped from an envelope taped behind the Bible. It had a tag with the dealer's name, the same dealer who had the sports car he had desired. On the tag was the date of his graduation and the words, paid in full. How many times in our life today do we miss God's blessings because they're not packaged as we expected them to be? Um, oh, that story was a beautiful example because many times in our life today, you know, if we don't get blessed the way we want to get blessed, we get angry at God, we get mad at God, and we just don't want anything to do with Him. We ignore Him, we pass Him off for years or even a lifetime, in fact. But the truth is that God wants to bless each and every one of us. God's love is shown for each and every one of us, whether you've been a Christian for 20 years or you're just now learning about the faith. And we have to realize that this morning. Over time, if you're a parent, your hope is that your children love you the way you love them. They appreciate the sacrifices you made. They appreciate even the smallest of blessings that you bestow upon them. 
And in turn, you hope they show you love by obedience, trust, and respect. And this parallels to our love with God and how God treats us. However, many times in life, we don't get what we want the way we want it. When we get mad and upset, we act like a little kid. Uh, we treat God the same way the Son treated the Father in the story, and we miss the blessings that He had for us all along. This morning, before we can understand what kind of love we should have toward God, we need to know just how much we don't deserve this love and how, and how much in return He still graciously gives it to us. So that's what we're going to learn this morning is the Father's love for you. How deep is God's love? And now my prayers this morning after you hear this message, you really start to understand how deep and how wide God's love is for you, even though we desperately don't deserve it. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in, in John most of the day today. John chapter 18 through 20. Uh, I'm going to read you a little verse from Ephesians to get us started. But then most of the message this morning will be in John 18 through 20. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, that would be wonderful. I'm going to read you guys off Ephesians chapter 3, 17 through 18, though, as we get started. And it says this right here. <clears throat> that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might. Whoops, was a little heavy this morning. Um, be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, you can be filled with the fullness of God. That is my prayer for you this morning as we go through this message, that you experience the depth and the fullness of God's love for you, and how much he desperately desired a relationship with you, and the length he went just to love you and to be in a relationship with you. So, as we go into this morning's lesson, the very first thing we have to understand before we understand God's love for us is how much, like I said, we don't deserve his love. If you look back in the original creation plan in Genesis, um, God's original plan for humanity was not to have all this sin and death and pain and suffering and all the terrible things that he will blame God for today. God's original plan for humanity was to prosper us, to bless us, and to live in community with us in a relationship in a perfect garden, a perfect place. So the place that God put us in, there was no death, there was no pain, there was no suffering, and God's original plan was to live in communion with us forever in this perfect place. But he gave us one rule, just one rule to follow. It was very simple. He said, don't eat from this one tree. Everything else you can have in the garden, you know, all these trees, all the plants I've given over to you, but don't eat from this one tree. And many of us think, well, why did God even give us a command? Well, think about this. You know, if, you're, if you love your children, you know, the way they show you love back is a lot of times by obedience, by, by, by trusting what you say, respecting you. And God wanted us to love him the way he loved us. So God said, okay, I'm going to give them one very simple command, and if I know they follow that command, then in return I understand they love me, they respect me, and they have, they have reverence for me. But even that one little bitty command, the devil tempts us, and oh, it's not that bad, it looks good, it won't be that harmful. And of course, we know the story, Adam and Eve fell into that sin. Now, Adam and Eve fell into sin, when you choose to go against God's will and God's plan for your life, you get the opposite of God's presence. So when God's presence was in the garden, there was love, there was peace, there was joy, there was hope. 
But when God's presence left the garden, everything opposite of that came into the world. So all the sin, the death, the division, the, the, the mean comments, the bullying, all these things we have in our world today was not from God. It was because we uh, went away from the presence of God. When you go away from the presence of God, you get the opposite of the presence of God, which is death and division. And so this led to separation from us and God. At this point, all God had to do was say, okay, look, humans didn't follow me. They didn't love me. I'm done with them. You know, they, they, didn't, they didn't love me back. You know, finally get what they deserve. They're just going to live forever in this way. They'll die and be separated from me forever. But that's not how God worked. God said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive them. I, 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 want, I want them to be in a relationship with me, so I'm going to give them a second chance. Just like any good parent does with their children, when you make a mistake, the parent says, okay, look, there's punishment, but here, let me give you a second chance, because I still love you. I, 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 still want, I still want to be in a relationship with you. I still care for you. And so it's kind of funny. If you look through Scripture, after the fall of Adam and Eve, then God sends uh, patriarchs to, or I'm sorry, he sends Noah. He raises up Noah and his family. So the world starts getting very corrupt. All these murders happen. All these terrible things happen. But God says, you know what? Noah and his family are following me. Why do I try starting over with them? So sure enough, God does this. Gives humanity a second chance. But if you guys know the story of Noah, as soon as Noah gets off the ark, the first thing he basically does is goes and gets drunk. And he passes out. And then all of a sudden, sin once again comes into the world. And people start killing each other again. And bad things start happening. So then God says, okay, I'm going to raise up some patriarchs, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, and they're going to lead the people. But then as, the, as history portrayed itself, even those very leaders God raised up decided to start doing things they wanted to, not how God called them to. And so then you go all the way to the book of Judges, and, and God says, okay, you know, fine, I'm going to give humanity another chance, and I'm going to raise up Judges. Uh, and across the land. And these judges are going to rule the people. They're going to keep them accountable. They're going to help them obey God and, and things like that. But I want you guys to read or to hear this message here in Judges. And I think it portrays our lives so much. And I want to read it off to you guys here. Let me pull it up. All right. And. The passage I want to read you guys is in Judges 21, and it's in chapter 25. I'm sorry, Judges chapter 21, verse 25. And it says this right here. It says, in those days, this is after God had tried the judges for several, several years and decades. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. After all these centuries, this is centuries after the fall of Adam and Eve, and the people keep going away from God's will, it keeps not working out for them, bad things keep happening to them, and God keeps giving them second chances. After all these centuries, what does judges end with? The people went their own way and did what was right in their eyes, not in God's eyes. And so we look, we fast forward thousands of years later to our society today, and what do, we, what do people do? We do things our way, how we want them to, although God's word clearly says differently. And so that's how we end up leading up to the resurrection story here in a little bit. But I want you guys to think about this. How many times in our life do we go our own way still when God clearly instructs us to go in a different direction 
or live a different way. We do things we feel are right or that are right in our own eyes, even though the Bible says differently. A lot of times when the Bible we're referred to as sheep, and if you think about sheep, a lot of you guys may have had sheep or had family members that had sheep and raised sheep in the past. They're one of the dumbest animals, um, and, and sheep a lot of times will, although they know it's bad to do this, they'll go away from their shepherd. The, the safety and guidance of the shepherd, the sheep run in the opposite direction. They go off in the darkness, and they eat by the wolves, and they go off in the darkness, and they get lost, and they can't find their way back. And, you know, a lot of times sheep are just really, really dumb animals. And it's kind of funny the Bible refers to us as sheep because we act the same way a lot of times. We know what's right in the Bible. We know what Jesus told us to do. And if we follow his ways, he promises guidance and direction and a life of peace and joy, although things may get tough. But we, we stray away and we get lost. We go off into darkness knowing that it hurt us the last time. And if I had you guys raise your hands this morning and said, how many of you guys ever did something you weren't supposed to do that a parent or a teacher or a pastor said not to do, everybody's hands going to go up. But then what's funny is if I follow that up and say, okay, know that it was wrong, how did you guys do that same thing again later on? Most of you guys' hands will go up again. Why? Because we're sheep. We're prone to wonder. We're prone to leave the God we love. We're prone to stray away. And that's where it gets so important. A lot of us approach God's word the same way. Because of this, we don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve even one second chance. But God consistently throughout our entire life, you're still breathing and living today. God is still reaching after you and seeking after you because he loves you that much. He loves you that much that he was willing to send his son to die on a cross, which we're going to talk about here in a second. Um, his love extends that much to us. So a lot of times people say, well, how can a loving God send people to hell? And this is the question you get from a lot of people that are non-Christians. You know, if that's the case, if God's so loving, he's constantly seeking after me, how could a loving God send me to hell? And so I was doing some research. I mean, I've been in church, obviously, a long time, and I've been through seminary. But I was doing some research, and if you think about this, in a sense, God doesn't really send anyone to hell. We really send ourselves there. Um, if you think about this, um, God constantly is seeking after us throughout our entire lives, wanting a relationship with us. But if we deny that relationship, if God is a fair and just God, it's only fair for him to deny that relationship in eternity if we deny it here on earth. Um, so think about that. You know, it, it, hell in a sense is really separation from God. And a lot of people in our world today, they choose to live a life separated from God. They follow after their own way. They go after their own way. And so God says, okay, fine. I'm going to give you second chances all throughout your life. But if you decide that you really don't want me, and you, don't, you deny my relationship and my love for you, then I'll deny you in heaven. And that's only fair. It's really not that God's an unloving or, or, or fair God. We don't even deserve any chance. We really send ourselves there if we don't follow him. But God is constantly seeking to have a relationship with us. If we deny his love, we spend eternity separated from his love. Um, but here's the hope. Everyone listening to this today is still breathing on this earth. You're here this morning. You're still alive and there's still a chance for you. God is still seeking after you. Jesus was the only one that would ever live a perfect life on earth, the only one born of the Spirit, and the only one worthy to take this punishment we deserve. And that's how we get to God's true love for us, the extent of his love. And I want you guys to look at John chapter 18 this morning. 
This is where we're going to be most of the morning here. John chapter 18, it starts in verse 39. So I'm trying not to knock everything over. Uh, John <laughs> is getting a little iffy. Okay, John chapter 18, verse 39 says, But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Talking about Jesus. This is Pilate. Then they all cried out again, saying, No, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So then Pilate took Jesus, scorched him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe, and they said to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in Jesus. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they called out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. For the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, again, catch this, our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again to the um, to the place and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. I want you guys to realize this this morning. After all these centuries of people turning away from God, God says, okay, you know what? You guys definitely don't deserve this, but I love you so much, I'm going to send my only son to die for you. I'm going to send my only son to come and live a perfect life on earth. He's the only one born of the Spirit, only one that actually followed me from birth to death and lived a perfect life. So he's the only one that can take your punishment that you deserve and spend eternity in hell upon himself and die for you because I love you that much. But now even though Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life, he performed miracles, he healed people, he comforted them, he showed them love and grace, the same people Jesus came to die for are the ones that said, crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate, Pilate, the leader of that time, says, I find no fault in Jesus. This man is a good man. He's doing great things for you. And they say, why don't you, why don't you crucify this guy, Barabbas? He's a robber. He said, he's a bad dude. And the crowd says, no, Jesus, we want him. And they say, why? Because it's our law he broke. Again, it's not what we wanted. The people back then, they wanted a king that was going to come and overthrow the Roman government and put them in power. But because Jesus said, I didn't come to do that, I came to save your soul, which is far better than you being in power just for a decade or a century. They said, no, we don't want that. I'm sorry, crucify him, because it's not what we had in mind. And Jesus, even though he knew this, still was willing to go on the cross for those people. Think about this for a minute. Many of, many of us at this point would have said, forget it. These people aren't worth it. They ain't worth my time and my effort. You know, I'm doing all this and they don't care. But Jesus, while he went to the cross, said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Even in Jesus' darkest moment, 
when he was rejected the most by humanity, he still thought about how much he loved you and how much he was willing to do for you. He said, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. Now, we can go through a lot about what Jesus endured on the cross, but I want you guys to read the next part here in John chapter 19, verses 17 through 24. This is really, this is really impressive. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a school, which is in, called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. So I think it's pretty impressive. Therefore the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews. But he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. And here's why this is important. So, after all of Jesus did for you, he dies willingly on the cross for you. Now, a lot of times when we go through that in the resurrection service, we go through Easter, we think, okay, yeah, it was a painful death, he died on the cross, that's traumatic, you know, move on to the next point. I don't think a lot of us realize how much he actually endured on that cross. How painful and dreadful that death was. And at any point, he could have said, God, I'm done, take me away, I'm changing my mind. But through every single step, he did it all for you. Because he loved you. He wanted a relationship with you. He wanted to reconcile that relationship we built with God for you. And I want, you, I want to read you guys all. There was a guy that did a study several years ago about a scientific study on, on what Jesus would have went through on the cross. I want you guys to really listen to this this morning and just take this in and think about the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and all he went through, although we didn't deserve it. I want to read you guys this off here. It's not very long. I want you guys to think about this. And it says, Pilate ordered Jesus to be flogged as required by Roman law before crucifixion. Traditionally, the accused stood naked, and the flogging covered the area from the shoulders down to the upper legs. The whip they whipped Jesus with consisted of several strips of leather. In the middle of the strip were metal balls that hit the skin, causing deep bruising. In addition, sheep bone was attached to the tips of each strip. When the bone makes contact with Jesus' skin, it digs so deep into his muscles it tears out chunks of flesh and exposes the bone beneath. The flogging leaves the skin on Jesus' back in long ribbons. By this point, he has lost a great volume of blood, which causes his blood pressure to fall and puts him into shock. The human body attempts to remedy, remedy imbalances such as decreased blood volume, so Jesus' thirst is his body's natural response to his suffering, which you see in John, he's thirsty. If he would have drank water, his blood volume would have increased, but they didn't give him water. Roman soldiers then placed a crown of thorns on Jesus' head and a robe on his back. The robe was placed to help the blood clotting to prevent Jesus from bleeding out at that moment. Now, as they hit Jesus in the head, the thorns from the crown then push into the skin, and he begins bleeding profusely. The thorns also cause damage to the nerve that supplies the face, 
causing intense pain down his face and his neck. As they mocked him, the soldiers also belittled Jesus by spitting on him. They ripped the robe off Jesus' back and the bleeding starts afresh. Jesus' physical condition becomes critical due to severe blood loss without replacement. Jesus is now undoubtedly in shock. As such, he is unable to carry the cross, which we talked about in the Bible, that Simon and executes his task. Simon executes his task. Now, I want you guys to really think about this this morning. If you want to close your eyes and fall asleep, but just think about this. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the weight of his body pulls down the diaphragm, and the air moves into his lungs and remains there. Jesus must push up on his nailed feet, cause even more pain just to excel. So when he says, Jesus, forgive them, for they know not what they do, he literally is fighting every ounce of pain in his body just so he can say those words, so he can hear them, and God can hear them. In order to speak, air must pass over the vocal cords during exhalation. The difficulty surrounding this leads to a slow form of suffocation. Carbon dioxide builds up in the blood, resulting in a high level of carbon acid, uh, acid in the blood. The body responds, triggering a desire to breathe. At the same time, the heart beats faster to circulate available oxygen. The decreased oxygen causes damage to the tissue and begins leaking watery fluid from the blood to the tissue. This result is the buildup fluid around the heart. The collapsing lungs, failing heart, dehydration, and inability to get sufficient oxygen leads to suffocation of the victim. The decreased oxygen also damages the heart itself, which leads to cardiac arrest. In severe cases of cardiac arrest, the heart may even burst, a process known as cardiac rupture. Jesus most likely probably died of a heart attack. Now, after Jesus' death, the soldiers break the legs of the other two criminals, crucified along with him, causing suffocation. Death would have then occurred quicker. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. Instead, the soldiers pierced his side to assure that he was dead. In doing this, it was reported that blood and water came out, referring to the watery fluid surrounding the heart and the lungs from this process. While these unpleasant facts depict a brutal murder, the death of Christ's pain emphasizes the true extent of God's love for his creation. A lot of you don't realize the extent of what Jesus endured that day. And like I said, in every step, he could have said, I'm backing out. I'm not doing this. They're not worth it. They don't love me. But he said, no, this is God's will, and I love you, and I want to be with you. And although you don't choose me, I choose you. And if you just repent and turn to me, I will restore you and forgive you of all your sins, even those you did to me today. <clears throat> I want you guys to think about something here. If the story would have stopped there, it would have been a pretty incredible story. But dying alone doesn't really defeat death. It doesn't defeat, you know, any of us can die. And we're all going to do that eventually unless Jesus comes back. Dying alone doesn't bring forth salvation. Dying alone doesn't break the curse of our sin. And although Friday was a dark day, Sunday was coming, and Jesus would raise from the grave, defeating sin, death, and hell for us. He brought forth salvation for us all if we repent and follow him. Our sins are washed away by his blood and were redeemed by him for all eternity. 
We can now become a new creation in Christ Jesus and live in the freedom we once had in the garden that God desired for us all along. And when we die, Jesus says that if you repent and follow me, when you die, you go to heaven, which is a place of what? No pain, no death, no suffering, but eternal joy, peace, and love, just like it was supposed to be back in Genesis. Just like I had planned all from the start. I'll give you that still and even better if you turn to me and give your life to me. Begin a relationship today with me because that's how much I love you. That's how much I'm willing to do for you. It says here in John 20, I want you guys to think about this this morning. It says in John 20, <clears throat> but the resurrection starts in verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she, stopped, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had once laid. Sorry about that. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who were you seeking? She, she, supposing him to be a gardener, said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said, Rabbi, which is teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and they had spoken these things to her. Jesus appears after his death to Mary, some of his disciples, to multiple people. There's about nine eyewitnesses at least in the Bible who it appears to after his death, showing them that I have defeated this death. The, the tomb is empty. I'm alive. I'm here today. And if you put your faith in me, no matter if you mocked me, you scorned me, you know, you did that a day ago, or two days ago, today you can follow me and I'll forgive you of all your sins. I'll wash you clean because I love you still that much. And I want you guys to think about something here. A lot of people say, well, did the resurrection really happen? How can you prove that happened based off just the Bible? Well, one, the weight of the tomb. The weight of the tomb was about 1,000 pounds. That's not something that you just you know, roll over real easily. You know, I would take a team or an army to do that, and the tomb was likely guarded by multiple soldiers. Also, everyone in the Bible, even those that aren't Christians in that time period, admitted the tomb was empty. Think about this. The religious leaders that put Jesus in the tomb didn't want him to raise from the dead. Obviously, that would be terrible for them and, and their reputation. But even the religious leaders back then made rumors and lies about how somebody stole the body Assuming that the tomb was empty, admitting the tomb was empty. Nobody said the tomb wasn't empty. Everybody knew that was the case, even though religious leaders back then. That's pretty interesting evidence. In addition to that, again, Jesus came about nine eyewitnesses as recorded in the Bible. And it was documented and recorded in history just months after it happened. And back then, unless something was historical fact, Nobody wrote it down on paper until, you know, decades or years afterwards. Most of it back then was an oral tradition. And I want you guys to think about one other concept here today. Sometimes people think about near-death experiences, and that can be a really weird, odd concept. But a near-death experience is where somebody 
is pronounced medically dead or whatnot on earth for a little for a little bit of time and then they come back and those near-death experiences they actually did a survey of hundreds of people those that pronounced to be christian and those that didn't pronounce to be christian and everybody that saw a vision of like a heaven or a god afterwards none of them saw anybody that resembled any god but the god of the bible None of them saw multiple gods. None of them saw anything you see in like Hindu or Buddhism or Judaism. Um, all of them saw what was in the Bible. A heaven that was uh, outlined in the Bible. And that's pretty amazing. So if we understand that this happened, what is our response to the empty tomb this morning? If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, what is your response to the tomb? If you know this is true and you admit this, how do you act in return? Jesus died so we can now live. I want you guys to think about that concept. Jesus died so we can now live. If you believe the resurrection is true, everything in your life should change. The way you live, the way you talk, the way you interact with people should all change, and your life should be now dedicated to following him. He died for you so you can live for him. And I want you guys to think about this this morning. <clears throat> Number one, do you really have a relationship with him? Maybe you grew up in church, maybe you've heard these stories many times, but have you ever actually accepted Jesus into your heart? Is it real to you? Because think about this. You know, I can, I can know of sports teams, and I can know of you know, famous singers and stuff like that. Just because I know of these people, I know of these teams, doesn't mean I actually follow them. I'm a fan or supporter of them. You may know of Jesus, know of these stories, you may know of what, what the Bible says, but do you truly follow Jesus? Is your life dedicated to him? And the way you know that is, does your life produce fruit? If you don't have fruit in your life, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness that his spirit gives you, when, it, when his spirit indwells within you, then maybe your life is not really rooted in him. If the way you live your life doesn't align with the Bible and it's totally contrary, maybe you haven't really accepted that truth that he's raised from the grave and you haven't really given your life over to a full dedication to him. And if not, that's what you need to do this morning. Because if your life is not rooted in him, then it's rooted in anything but him. And if you don't have God's presence in your life, you have the opposite of God's presence. When life gets hard, you're not going to have that peace and joy that only comes from God. And you're going to turn to everything and everyone else but Jesus. If your life isn't producing fruit this morning, ask yourself, is your life really given over to Jesus? And if not, don't wait another minute this morning to give your life to him. Tomorrow is not promised, and there's no reason to wait. This is the most important decision you'll make in your life, and if you have time today this morning, then do that. You never know what's going to happen when you leave this place. God's blessed you with this time, this opportunity. He's given you another chance this morning. Don't ignore that call. And if you have accepted Jesus in your heart, and you've entered a relationship to him through repentance, then we're called to share this truth with those around us. Jesus shined the brightest light into the world when he rose from the dead, so we can then shine a light for him into the dark world today. You know, there's, a, there's an example in the Bible of Paul. Paul was one of the greatest disciples of Jesus. And he said, I'm willing to do anything I can to reach the lost. 
Because I know that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe he's alive today. And I don't want to just keep this gift to myself. I want everybody to receive this gift. I want everybody to come to Jesus. This is what I desire for everyone. So I'm willing to do whatever it takes to reach the lost. And ask yourself this morning, do you have that kind of faith? Are you that kind of committed Christian where you say, I'm putting my preference aside to do whatever it takes to reach the lost for Jesus? No matter if that means I have to do things differently from the past, I have to change the way I minister, I have to change the way I reach out, i got to go outside my comfort zone, as Pastor James was talking about. I want to be and do whatever it takes to reach the community of Lagardo around me because that's the most important task I have in my life now. Because when I get to heaven one day, Jesus is not going to look at me and say, Hey, Bradley, you're a great businessman, or you're a great farmer, or whatever your profession is. Great job. He's going to say, what would you do for me? If you knew that I rose from the grave, did you share this with others? What kind of impact did you leave for me on the world today? When people saw you, did they encounter me or something different? Think about your life today. Is your life producing fruit? And is your life leading others to Jesus? Or is it leading them away? Because if you want to grow as a church, if you want to grow as a family, it starts with a heart issue of being willing to do whatever it takes to move forward and to reach the lost for him. So as we close this morning, I want you guys to think about the two things. One, Jesus' spirit, if it's within you this morning, and if you're not reaching the laws, if you never talk about him, you never share your faith, you're ashamed of it, then maybe you need to get your heart right with Jesus today. To say, Jesus, let me put you back as my first priority. Let me put you back as the most important thing in my life. Give me the desire, the passion that I used to have when I first came to you. Ignite that fire back within me again so I can go out and share with the world around me. Because if people see you're passionate about something and it's real to you, they're going to be drawn in to say, hey, maybe I should listen to see what they have to say. If they know it's real to you and they can see the spirit evident in your life and the fruit you produce, they're going to say, how can I get that? How can I, how can I have that? And you can point them to Jesus. And this morning, if you've never actually given your life to him, you've never made that first step to say, I'm going to repent of my sins and really seek to follow you. You know, I may not be perfect in life. I may make mistakes still and mess up. But I'm going to seek to live differently and seek to start living for Jesus. I'm going to accept his love he gave me and start to follow him. If you haven't made that decision this morning, we're going to give you an opportunity here in a moment. Uh, I'm going to pray for us here. And uh, is it okay, Rod, if you come up and do an invitation song? Rod, is going to come do an invitation song? If you're, if you're right there in your seat, if you want to make the decision for Christ today, I encourage you to do so. If you want to come to the front and talk to somebody, if you want to talk to Pastor James or one of us afterwards, by all means, please do that. But don't wait another minute. If you know Jesus rose from the grave, your life starts today to live for him, and it should look differently. Let me pray for you. Dear Lord, I, I just pray, first off, Lord, if anyone here has not given their life to you, if they haven't truly turned to you and repented and accepted your gift and your love, you displayed for us on the cross. As they say a prayer very similar to this this morning. Say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've made mistakes and done things my way. But I know you died on the cross for my sins. I want to give my life and surrender to you. I want to start following you 
from this point forward. Please save me this morning and bring your spirit into my life. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. And if you, if you said that prayer this morning, I ask that you come and talk to somebody. Come up here. Don't wait another minute. And if you are a Christian this morning, I ask you, you if your life is not living for God, if you don't see fruit, if you're not sharing your faith, I ask you to repeat a prayer similar to this and say, Lord Jesus, I'm, I am sorry. I am doing things my way. I know it's not right. I know I'm living the way I shouldn't live. There's sin in my life that's unrepented of. But today, I commit my life back to you. Today, I'm going to start living for you once again and shine the light of your love to the world around me. Let me do anything I can, be anything I can, to reach the walls in the community for you. Whatever you call me to do, let me do it unashamedly. In your holy and precious name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.